Here we are, Music Biz 101 or more. You want to hear something funny, Dr. Sure. Teaching a class today, all right? I'm teaching a class. My two o'clock personal management class, right? Teaching this class. The mm-hmm. one kid, he raises his hand. He says this to me. He goes, just like this in faith, you were there. He says yes, to me, I was. this is what he says. He says, yo, who does the singing on your show? Because sometimes I hear somebody singing. And I says to him, you mean that sweet, beautiful, melodic singing that you hear in the studio? And he didn't say yes, but I knew that's what he was thinking. And I said, that was me. And he believed you? And he did believe me. Uh-huh. Because Let's... here we are on Music Biz What's 101 a... What's a uh, better grade, I guess? He does one very good grade. Right. He's going to get a D just because. Oh. Just because I'm a vindictive little I know. person. And that's we're talking to Dr. Esteban Marconi. Say hello, Dr. Esteban Marconi. Hello, Dr. Esteban Marconi. I was hoping he would do that. He's wearing his that's right. customary long sleeve. <laughs> Last time you'll see it. <laughs> so here's it. So we're here with with Faith. Retiring it. With Faith Bruinstar. Here's our student co-host. Hello, Faith. Hello. Great to have you here, Faith. Glad to be here. So, Faith, let me tell you this. We were all of a sudden. I heard myself speaking. Were we speaking the whole time? Yeah. Okay. So it's just we can. Okay. It was just low. So let me tell you, folks. Marconi and I, we gave a webinar about our master's degree programs here at William Patterson, the university. And in this webinar, people were seeing pictures and I put up pictures. I wasn't thinking just pictures that made sense of what we were talking about. In every picture, he's wearing the same long, red long sleeved shirt <laughs> that he's actually wearing right now. So we it was, so it was very great. So we obviously know oh, that. It's like he, a half a dozen pictures. I mean, he wears one seminar. Shirt with bulos all over the place and i have this one shirt on isn't everything it was unbelievable yet in every picture of me i was topless so (laughs) that's that's what i think is going to sell the program speaking of selling the program we have our number one favorite seller of the program over behind the board her name is ashley veltner ashley veltner yes and, yes, um, and what happened at Sirius this week where you're interning? Oh, you got to tell this because we have some competition in the podcast and radio field. Tell us what made you mad. Um, well, it didn't make me mad. <laughs> uh, I was helping out. We have these things at Sirius which are called town halls, and they're basically like live events where you sit there and they do an interview. Um, but this one was pre-recorded because they're on tour. Um, so we didn't have an audience with them. We were just recording it. It was like a debate between Bob Lefsetz and Jason Flom. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was really interesting, and I had a really good time. It's actually, or it actually aired today, earlier um, in the day. But um, 
I was producing for it, and I kept giving Bob, like, the wrap it up sign, because I was getting word from the person running for the board telling me, like, oh, go, like, tell him, like, wrap it up, like, we gotta stop for this segment, and he kept, like, ignoring me, mm. and I'm like, mm. Bob, oh, and then when it was wrapping up for the entire thing, he gave me the one minute sign, and I'm just like, what do I do? <laughs> and I, like, walked over to the window, and, like, Evan's like, did he hear you? And I can't talk, so I'm, like, nodding, giving him thumbs up, like, yeah, he heard me, he just gave me the... He just gave me the one-minute thing, finger, and, like, it was just, like, really awkward. Oh, and yeah. then he went over by four minutes. Oh, and that's gosh. a lot of editing, like, yeah. editing that much audio out for a one-hour show that we have to have, um, like, an ent- if you do an hour show with the three talk breaks, you're only talking about 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not including, like, your intro. And we had to put the intro in, like, with... Evan had to di- like digitally edit in the intro and the breaks and the outro and now like he had to edit out five more minutes because he didn't he had too much audio for it and it was just mm-hmm. it was a struggle. I learned a lot though. Um, I know he doesn't like MTV a lot, and it was funny because Mark Goodman was there and he's like, "But MTV was so great to find music on," and he's just like, "Yeah, sure." Oh. <laughs> interesting. Well, we're talking about a a gentleman Bob left his who actually is read by everyone in the music industry, yes. and that's why we're bringing this up. And if you care to be up-to-date on the industry and get information from a very opinionated person, you can actually, for free, you can subscribe to leftsis.com, the Leftsis newsletter. L-E-F-S-E-T-Z? Or yes. S- yes. dot com. yes. And he... I guess they are a competitor now, aren't they? In a way. Uh, he yeah. has his own podcast, and he has um, not, he doesn't have the pretty voice that I have, nor the right. red shirt that you have. No. I but, mean, yeah. his show's like, it might be about the music business, but it's not like your how your guys' show is structured, where you're mm-hmm. more informational. His is more of like, I remember the one I helped out on was Best Guitar Solos. So, oh, um, that kind of thing. So it's it's so like some trivia too. Yeah, there's a bit of trivia, so it's not like you guys teaching us about law and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one day we'll be on Sirius XM. We'll do a tour. You're gonna leave us. Broad, broadcast through the William Patterson <laughs> right. Radio System. Community. What is it? The William Patterson system. When we play our uh, the William Patterson broadcast broadcasting system. system. That's right. Um, and we should mention that we are on Brave New Radio, and it is the Marconi Award-winning Brave New Radio, number one non-commercial radio station in the Los Estados Unidos. That's right. All mm-hmm. of the Los Estados Unidos, every mm-hmm. single Los Estados Unidos. And it's also an intercollegiate broadcast mm-hmm. network number one collegiate radio station in... Four times. Four times. Four in... It's not four, four in, in seven years. Four in seven years. And speaking of two in four years... Mm-hmm. Yes. Dr. Stabon. That we received the second time in four years from Billboard magazine, one of the best places to study about the music business in America. The University of William Patterson. Yes, and we're very happy about that and well-deserved for our program. Yes, very happy. Worked very hard for that. And we should mention that we will have a guest calling in. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where he is. He's an attorney, and uh, if we charge him by the minute, we're going to make some money off of this. George Gilbert, he's an intellectual property attorney. We're going to spend a decent amount of time talking about the Music Modernization Act. We mentioned Faith Boonstra, who is our student co-host, who is here. Faith has a 4.9 GPA. (laughs) She speaks fluent Japanese and English. 
and she's a pop major. And how many minors do you have? Two or three? I just have one, but... One minor or two majors? Two majors, one oh. minor, and honors college. Yeah, I'm surprised I haven't driven myself crazy yet, but it's like I'm I'm graduating in May, so... That's right. She's what right? you call intelligent. Uh, yes, I know. I like people that. like her. We should tell people, go to musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter that we're going to send out to you. Go to at musicbiz101wp to follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, and the Fest of the Book. And you should also... Listen to this as a podcast, and it's going to be on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we're going to get on Spotify, um, and then we're going to get it in a bunch more places. We should give thanks. Is it time to give thanks? Mm-hmm. We haven't... Did we mention Jaden Hudson's name at all? Nothing. Oh, my goodness. We're going to take a pause, and we're going to give thanks to Jaden Hudson, who does not have a microphone, but he has driven all the way up from Wilmington, Delaware, to come up and see if William Patterson the University is the place for him. Jaden, just say, just beat that bashfulness aside and just say, hello, America, I like you. Hello, America, I like you. Yes! Thank you, Jaden Hudson. There we go. Jaden's thinking of coming here, senior in high school, and we hope you come here, Jaden, because it will help pay our bills. <laughs> it's the only reason. It's all about the money. Let's see. We should give thanks. Jaden, may we give thanks? Just give me a good nod. You can nod on the radio. Thanks to Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB... <laughs> CPA.com when you're ready. We should also give thanks to Christine Vey. Christine Vey, a wealth manager and the president of Vey Wealth Management. Christine is, I wonder if she has any idea that we do this. I don't know. Christine, if you're listening right now, be the first to tweet us and tell us to stop. Until we do that, we're going to continue. Christine has helped many professionals with William Patterson manage their investments and plan for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, if you have questions on anything or investments, portfolio management to insurance retirement planning, you should give Christine a call at... Oi. They. <laughs> we'll we'll no, come back. Well, let's number. do the phone number first. So, so faith in my heart. Repeat after me. 732- 732- 455- 1510. 1510- and you can also email her at christine at com for advisement. Leave the last oi off for savings. <laughs> that's it. That is it. If Very that, excited. If that's not confusing. What is? There's nothing. Um, Speaking can, of kiss. You speak of that. I'm going to text our guest and Please. say, why have you not called in? So right. I will tune out mentally for a moment. Go. You speak. Speaking of kiss, I don't know if you saw what... Gene Simmons has come up with in the last two weeks. There's a new merch, and it's, um, what's it called? I can't remember the... It's soda. No, yeah. no, but it's Not Gene Simmons something, Gene Simmons Money or Gene Simmons... Oh, oh Money Bags. Yes, Gene money Simmons bags. Money bags. Oh dot com, and now he has a line of soda, of actual um, With carbonated sh- soda. Natural, natural sugar, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. carbonated, and it's in... Uh, Walt, it's in um, 7-Eleven, uh-huh. and he's all, well, it's coming out this week in 7-Eleven and also in, um, oh, God, Wegmans. Okay. It's in Wegmans as well. Can Unbelievable. I, I learned a Gene Simmons story yesterday. Ah. We had a, <clears throat> a guest on our radio show mm-hmm. two weeks ago, um, 
Cindy De Silva, mm -hmm. co-manager of the Zombies, who are up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Yes. So why don't you, listener, as you hear this, go to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Just Google, how do I vote for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2019? You'll be taken to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website, and that's where we want you to vote for the Zombies. Cindy came in and talked mm -hmm. to us, and that was one thing we said we did yeah. for her class to help them get Definitely. nominated. But she gave me a Gene Simmons story. Mm -hmm. um, one of the members of the Zombies... Rod Argent. Mm -hmm. He had a he was in a band called Argent. Ah, he's calling it the band Argent had a big song called Hold Your Head Up High. Mm -hmm. It might have been just called Hold Your Head Up. I think like 70 71. Hold your head up. Yeah. Oh, hold your head up. You know that song I'm talking about? Hold your hold your head high. Hold your head. And it has all this keyboard stuff going on. Anyway, that's a, you should know that. That's your era. You were on CBS Records at the time. Yes, I was. Playing trumpet. I remember the name of the, the title of the song. I don't think you sang it correctly. <laughs> Carry I on. That, I don't think that. And you were wearing that red shirt probably when you Carrie. played. And uh, speaking of Carrie, so um, Rod, Rod also wrote a song called God Gave Rock and Roll to You, which Kiss had a, uh, has sort of become an anthem of theirs mm -hmm. uh, that they put out in 1992. Kiss changed one word. Of the lyrics they told rod argent we want 50 percent of the songwriting publishing for change of one word wow and uh he had to agree or they wouldn't put the song on the album mm -hmm. and so they did it right. so we'll talk to our friend aaron van dyne someday and uh see if i get a call or he gets a call from gene simmons um but they can't take it back nobody can take it back it's done rod argent said yes wow. but that's uh that's an industry lesson and real life, actual real names. Yes. In which uh, Rob Fusari had told us a long time ago about the story of he wrote an album with, I believe it was with Beyonce. And mm -hmm. Matthew Knowles, who was her, uh, Beyonce's dad and manager, I'm t I think I'm telling the story two thirds right, um, said, Rob, um, we're, you're going to get paid, but you're not going to get any writer's credit for this. Beyonce is going to get all the credit. Rob said, no, good for him. And Grammy winner Rob Fusari, by the way, mm -hmm. alum. Of William Patterson, Rob sorry, and he said no. So they scrapped the whole album, and that was it between Beyonce and Rob. That was Rob her Fusari. first album, and yeah, yeah. She rewrote it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Correct. So there we go. Yeah, we've yeah. gone over these a lot in class too. So it's like they're good things to know. Yeah, this is great stuff. This is real stuff that well, you love. Sets thing is not going to tell you about know this. too. Is that Gene Simmons' mother lives in my old town that I grew up in on Long Island? Oh, there we go. Very That's nice. That's right, and they can tell when he visits because there's a big limo pulls up to the little house that she uh -huh. still she won't move little house that she lives in and uh you know how, how ever long he's there right the limo's there with the guy waiting and, that's she's gotta be 90 so something on. is george called in by the way so george i i would love right now more than anything to speak with george gilbert esquire intellectual property attorney do you think that's possible yes it is <laughs> yeah. hey. oh, we got well, ourselves a can I just jump in on that conversation? I got to tell you something. Yeah. Frank Sinatra worked with the greatest songwriters in the history of the music business. He never asked for a piece of a song. Mm. And that's because he knew that, first of all, he respected not only the songwriters, but all the musicians he worked with. Tony Bennett is the same. A friend of mine was telling me about a session he engineered with Al Schmidt, famous producer Al Schmidt, mm -hmm. uh, a Tony Bennett session. After the session, Tony stood by the door. It was a big session, full orchestra. Tony stood by the door and shook each musician's hand, personally thanked each musician who 
played on the session as they walked out the door. Very nice. Um, you know, I mean, they, I, that's class. Yeah. Sinatra yeah. was that's the same way. And right. they recognized that if, and I think Sinatra said, I'm paraphrasing here, but Sinatra said, if I don't have great songs, mm. and he recognized that, and he knew that if he abused the songwriters, and God, if anybody had the power to take a piece of a song, it was Sinatra, especially right. during his peak, he never did it. And now, it, you know, adding that changed. To that, adding to that, George, is that also he was, um, in the 50s, he was one of the first people that got behind trying to get the terrestrial radio performance royalty right. to performers. He was, he was uh, you know, one of the guys that actually uh, broke ground to get that going. Didn't I get can anywhere. tell you <laughs> that that changed. I, didn't, I don't hear about much of that in the 60s, but I think in the 70s it changed. And I think my theory as to why it changed was not necessarily the artist. But some enterprising managers said to their artists, and in particular, a very, very famous singer, female singer who is now called Legendary and who is one of the greatest singers of all time. I think her manager said to her, you know, you know, Babs, if you want to take a piece of a song that you're recording, I don't think the writers are going to say no because the simple fact that you're recording it is going to make them a lot of money. Sure. And maybe you should share in that. They'll make less money, but they'll still make a lot of money. Exactly. And what happened, I think, is that, you know, the business has got, as, as confidential as things might be, <laughs> people find out. And as soon as people find out that, hey, you know, well, she could do it, maybe I could do it, mm -hmm. that stuff happening. And then in, in the urban world, it was pretty common. I mean, look, the legendary guy who did that was Morris Levy, back starting sure. in the 50s. Morris Levy, Robbie Robertson tells a great story about how he recorded, very young in the 50s, started out, recorded with Ronnie Hawkins, wrote a song. Ronnie loved it. They recorded it, came out, was really excited, looked at the label, and he saw somebody else's name on it as the writer. And uh, he said to Morris, I said to Ronnie, what the hell is this? And Ronnie said, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Don't worry about it. So eventually, at some point later on, he uh, went to New York with Ronnie, and they went up to Morris Levy's office, and there was Morris surrounded by his uh, entourage, as you might want to call it today. Robbie was a quick study, got you know a sense of the situation, and realized that he was better off leaving it alone. But he learned early on the value of songwriting, which uh, came in handy much later when he was with the band and uh, took the sole writing credit for most of the songs, despite the fact that some of the other band members felt that they made substantial contributions sure. to those songs and maybe should have shared in that. Sure. So, sure. so this is all over the place. Uh, Hip-hop right. producers claiming the songs that, claiming the beats are theirs that are generated by younger, you know, starting out producers that, they're, that they employ. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a sad fact, but um, when you're on the way up, it's uh, you're vulnerable. And a lot of times it's the price of admission to give up certain rights that you really shouldn't have to give up. But because you're in a leveraged situation and you don't have the leverage, you got to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Do I want to stay where I am and keep working my way up, or do I want to run the risk of being potentially cut, being cut loose and then... Where will I be? Sure. 
and I still teach uh, the very first day, and uh, I have actually in one of my classes today, uh, this semester, and I write on the board 100% of nothing equals, so we can own everything and never give it to an intermediary. Right. But you're doing, you're saying exactly what, you know, what the norm is in the industry. The second thing I always say is that the inventor of the 360 deal was Morris Levy, of course. Well, yeah, you know, people talk about it like <laughs> it was a new thing. It was fairly common. It's been fairly common on and off forever. Yeah. Producers, production deals are essentially 360 deals because the producer is sharing in everything. Maybe not touring, but a lot of times the producer has an affiliated company that's the management company, and on the management side they're getting the tour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Jim Croce was in a 360 deal. Bruce Springsteen was in a 360 deal. Yeah. When he signed with uh, Mike Appel, yeah. they had the publishing, they were the management, they were the producers, so they really got a piece of every part of his career. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, when he started out, I think Bruce would have signed with anybody, as would most young artists uh, then and now. Everybody's looking for someone to carry them along and get them to a point where they have, now it's called visibility. Um, you know, in the, <laughs> Steve, you remember, I've seen them, these old movie, they call them backstagers because they tend to be about, you know, the business behind the entertainment business, but, you know, it's like the guys that stick with me, baby, I'll make you a star. Right. You know, that kind of, it's almost like, it sounds like such, an, such a cliche, but I can't tell you how many artists are hoping still that someone like that will come into their life because the, you know, the biggest complaint or moan that I hear from developing artists now is that they say, man, you know, I thought I had to just be a good songwriter or a good musician or a good performer I didn't realize I had to be a brilliant marketer on mm -hmm. top of that. Because now, because of what used to be called artist development, uh, is no longer there at the major labels and much less there at the independent labels because they can't really afford to, to do that anymore. Um, everybody's looking for artists to self-develop, get themselves to, like, I call it second base, rounding second on their way to third, mm -hmm. and sometimes on third base. And then it's the low-hanging fruit fruit principle that, 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 you know, becomes the pervasive uh, A&R policy. Let's look for artists that have gotten themselves so far out there that I can at least have an insurance policy that if we sign them and they don't happen, I could say, well, look, they had 3 million streams on Spotify and 400,000, you know, views on YouTube and, uh, and 150,000 or 300,000 or X number of hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, now I'm going to sound like an antique, but it wasn't that long ago, that you go inside a record company and you play them a tape, and first of all, they could listen to it, they would listen to it, and if they thought it was good, if they thought the artist sounded good, if they thought the songs were good, they'd actually come out to a show They'd see the artist. If they thought the artist was great live, they'd probably bring the head of the A&R department or maybe the president of the company to see them. And if everybody was, was equally enthused, they'd offer you a deal. And there were no numbers, no metrics that anybody could look at. They had to use what record company executives had been using since the turn of the century, which was their gut and their instincts. Mm -hmm. And that gave us probably most of the great artists of the what, 20th century, I guess it was, 21st mm -hmm. century? Yes. They weren't signed because they had a lot of metric numbers attached to their name. They were signed because people at record companies 
for better or worse, had to develop instincts about talent and recognizing it, mm-hmm. and then they gambled. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The great stu- Sorry, go ahead. No, I say exactly. You're, you're right. And that's how the industry has changed with the, uh, the amount of data that we just get in on, the, on a daily basis. And it can't be ignored. Uh, right. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the, you know, the sole well, factor. But, and any executive we've had on the show will say, well, we take it to account, but we don't, you know, it's still, it's to some extent, there's still a gut feeling somewhere. Uh, well, I don't believe that much of that. I don't believe that very much anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew it was always that. But, you know, what happened was between, say, 2000 and 2010, the major labels contracted dramatically. I mean, we, 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 most of us who have been paying attention remember when all of these labels were multifaceted. They put out rock, pop, hip-hop, jazz, classical, R&B. You know, they were, they were putting out all kinds of music, and they, they picked their projects. They picked their priorities. And the rule was if you, got, if you, brought, if you broke 10% of the new artists, during the year, that was, that was a massive success, and your really successful artist paid for all the development. Um, but all the people that know how to do that eventually got let go because they, they aged out in a certain mm-hmm. way. They were, mm-hmm. getting, they were too expensive to keep on. And the feeling was that because, I mean, it's a whole bunch of reasons. Labels became parts of multinational corporations, and they had to, they had to respond on a quarterly basis to profit earning statements, which had never been the case in an earlier era. And uh, all this stuff came together, and so the labels abandoned arts development. They became pop music labels, hip-hop being pop music, too. These, you know, it's like one general. I don't, I don't dis- distinguish between white music and black music. It's all pop music now because I think hip-hop has totally crossed over. And they're in the pop music business. And the thing about the pop music business is that it's completely ephemeral, it's not the kind of business that tends to generate enduring artists who generate catalog recordings that are still valued 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. You need to keep replacing your pop artists with new pop artists, and they all live and die by the hit single. If they have a hit, they're on top. If the next one isn't a hit, some percentage of their fans will migrate if the next one isn't a hit, more of their fans will migrate, and then you're a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. So they, what really shocked me as all this happened is that there was this formula that, that worked for a very long time that helped generate the catalogs of these companies, which keeps the lights on. The real behind-the-scenes reality of the record business is that every record company is not always hot all the time. And when they're not hot... If they have a catalog that continues to sell, that enables them to weather through the periods of time when they may not be having hits. But if you don't have a catalog, then you're totally dependent on constantly having to have hits. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a serious deficit. And they kind of stumbled into this whole idea of artist development. There wasn't some grand plan that somebody had. It happened because... In the 60s, after the Beatles, they would be willing to sign. I, initially, everybody thought at the record business that the Beatles were only going to last 18 months, two years, three years at the most. And then that was not the case. And by 66, 67, uh, the labels were wholeheartedly signing every rock band that they could, hoping to, you know, some of them being late to the game, 
catch up on all this. And as they were signing all these bands, these bands, they realized that there weren't a lot of experienced managers in the business. And so the label had to step in and help the manager figure out how to break the band. Mm -hmm. They had to support the band touring. They had to basically be the parental unit, in essence. And that enabled them to, you know, until the managers got to be smart enough or until the act changed management and went to a went to a more sophisticated or more intelligent manager, the labels were really an integral part of, of doing that work. And they didn't do it for everyone. You know, the acts that, that had got some traction, and sometimes that could just be a great review and they'd hold on to the act because picking up an option wasn't an expensive venture. I mean, a $10,000 advance in 1967 was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's the same in, with some indie labels, so it's kind of ironic how things have come around. But the labels, you know, labels, I remember one point, I was started at Atlantic in, in, the, uh, in, the eight, in the mid-70s. And I remember people telling me how in around 67, they, if you had long hair and knew anything about music, you could probably get a job at a record company because the guys who were running labels really didn't know how to relate to these rock bands. In the same way that when hip-hop broke, the guys who ran the labels didn't know how to relate to the artists that were doing that genre, and they wanted to, and they needed to hire executives that understood the music and could connect with the artists. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's kind of ironic that this thing, this thing goes around. But uh, they hired a lot of people, and those people end up becoming what later became known as the artist development people at the label. Uh, and they were develop, and the label, they you know Van Morrison, they held on to Van Morrison. Many Fleetwood Mac is a legendary story. You know, Fleetwood Mac was an incredible band. They were a blues band, but they didn't break through in terms of, you know, a massive rock band until 75, I want to say. And that was about seven albums in to their deal at Warner Brothers. Today, that would never happen. They wouldn't have gone past their first album. Bruce Springsteen wouldn't have gone past his first album, given what he sold, because the labels now can't afford to hold on to artists uh, because it just costs too much, and their investment in trying to break an artist is too great. So, you know, it's a very different business, but the flip side of it is now that, you know, in the advent of technology and GarageBand and, and iTunes and all everything else, anyone could make a record mm-hmm. and anyone could put out a record. And you don't need a record company anymore to finance the production of your record, enable the distribution of the record. Uh, and that, those were the big, that was the big wall that existed in the past. I had so many, art, so many artists with companies that want me to get them a record deal because they couldn't conceive of how they could make their own record, pay for a recording studio, pay for pressing, and how they could get their record into a record store. Because the, the major label distribution system, the record business in itself, all of it, kind of had a lock on all of that. Uh, record stores were not taking records on consignment, not many, most of them. And so you needed a record company. You needed to get signed. And they, didn't, they weren't signing everybody. And you know, a lot of artists would complain that they were great. And how come they weren't getting signed? So now we're on the opposite side of that, where you don't need a record company mm-hmm. to put out a record. But there's no formulaic way of marketing music now, especially, you know, let's call it alternative or everything other than pop music. Um, because it used to be, the formula was very simple. They'd sign the band, finance the record, release the record, buy price and positioning at retail, so the record would be up front, buy their way onto radio if necessary, put the band on tour, and see what happens. 
And that was, they did that to every artist, that every new artist especially, that they released. And the ones that stuck, there was, you know, sometimes we call it the shotgun approach. The ones that stuck, those are the ones that got the continued support, and the ones that didn't stick, they may not have made another record. But if really, it didn't take a whole lot. If you got an incredible review, if one radio station played you, if somebody was out there screaming loud enough, the label would say, you know what, we think we got something here, let's try another album. Now, everybody can put out a record, but nobody knows how to really break through marketing-wise because the Internet is the primary means. Radio does not break new artists anymore because radio doesn't play a lot of new artists anymore. I mean, there's progressive college radio, let's call it, or NPR radio, WFUV in New York, WFMU. You know, there are stations that, that do play new artists, but they don't have the same kind of reach and audience that, you know, in our youth, Steve, WABC-AM or WMCA-AM had, or then WNEW-FM had. And, uh, and so you can get your... The radio used to be the number one means of marketing. Got to get it on the radio. And we got to get it played a lot on the radio. And somebody did a survey, I don't know, some radio executive figured out if, that it took like 14 or 15 plays before a record pierced the consciousness of the listener, mm-hmm. assuming that in most cases, peop- most listeners are passive listeners. They're not like actively, that song comes on, they're not listening with all their intention. They're doing other things. So after about 14 or 15 plays, suddenly it's like, oh, what's that song? I've heard that song. I like that song. So repetition breeds familiarity. That's where that, you know, sort of attaches to that phrase. Well, let me, and, ju- George, can I jump in? Sure. Yeah, because um, Ashley has to say one thing to you real quick. Sure. And um, as she does that, I'm going to talk to our listeners. Um, we want to now, I interrupt you because we now need to get into the Music Modernization Act before we run out of time. So, George, we got to get into the Music Modernization Act before we run out of time. Sure, sure, sure. sure, sure. Already, uh, Sorry, but, you know. No, it's good. It's great stuff. But it's we are, very interesting. Yeah, we have uh, about 15 minutes left, so we want to get into it. Okay. And then, uh, so, Marconi, why don't you... Ask him just because you wrote to us right, some right. great stuff that, and when we read what you wrote to us, and we're not sharing this with the listeners yet, um, it totally opened our eyes to this Music Modernization Act. Could you just give us a, the, the briefing as to what it is? The parts. The, good stuff, bad stuff, and then we have a couple quick questions. Then we'll be done. Well, first of all, I think the most important thing that people have to understand about the Music Modernization Act, Modernization Act is that it really benefits songwriters and music publishers the most. It really doesn't help artists a whole lot, except for one section of the act, which is not the Music Modernization Act. It's another three acts, three bills, three sections were passed all at once. The Music Modernization was one. The one that really benefits artists is called the Classics Act. And the Classics Act helps artists whose recordings were released before 1972 who didn't get the benefit of a copyright because there was no copyright for pre-1972 recordings. And so we saw these the Turtles suing Sirius and Pandora. We saw a lot of these lawsuits that happened with artists who were released their records before 72 and didn't feel they were getting royalties for them. So that helps artists. That's the section that really helps artists. The third part is uh, helps music producers and engineers. The, 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 the meat and potatoes of the Music Modernization Act is really... Uh, a benefit for songwriters and music publishers. And that's, those are the ones that will hopefully really see something from it. And I say hopefully 
because as I said in the email, the devil is in the details, and the, impl the actual implementation of this act, I think it's going to take a while because it requires the creation of a collection service, a collection aid licensing agency that will grant blanket licenses um, for interactive streaming and digital downloads. And in order to do that, they have to, they have, to have a database of all of the songs that they may grant licenses to, so that's going to take a while. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of parts of this act that I think will be great eventually. The question is, how long will eventually be? Um, it's going to help. The, the biggest thing that it, that it hopes to solve is the fact that, that the biggest streaming services, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, um, the complaint on behalf of everyone, songwriters, artists, publishers, not record companies, for the most, because record companies got a piece of Pandora, excuse me, of Spotify. But everyone else complained they're not getting enough for streaming. You know, the formula is something like 1,500 streams equals something. I can't remember. It's like one album, but I don't believe yes. that that is how they're, 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 they're really paying for it. But, you know, you hear these other stories. I got 3 million streams, and I got a check for $35. You know, there's a, there's a perception of inequality in the, in the formula. And what Spotify did which was really smart for them, was they first of all made a deal with the labels because they knew that, that if they didn't have a deal with the labels, they'd immediately get sued for using these master recordings. Um, and so they cut a deal, and they gave the three major label groups, they each gave them a piece of the company. Not a big piece, but it turned out to be a very substantial, lucrative piece when they went public, and the labels, for the most part, sold most of their interests. So they got the labels from complaining and arguing about them. And, and it was really smart for them to do that because prior services that tried to launch, um, you know, the label, they'd approach the labels and the labels say, we want $10 million, we want $20 million. And most of these companies, they couldn't sustain that kind of payment to a record company, so they couldn't get, they couldn't really get, they couldn't get any traction. Spotify made this deal, so they got the labels off their back. They didn't, they didn't, they couldn't do that with the music publishers, though, because there are a couple of big ones, but there are hundreds and hundreds of smaller ones. And, and so what they did was they said, Look, we're going to take a calculated risk. We're not going to worry about getting licenses from the publishers for the song, for the, for the use of the compositions, because that's what the music publishers really control. We're not going to get the licenses. We'll, we'll deal with it down the line. And as a result of which, the publishers screamed, the songwriters screamed, and Spotify got sued from a number of publishers for billions of dollars. What the Music Modernization Act does is it gets Spotify off the hook. No more lawsuits can be brought against Spotify. This new licensing formula will go into effect at some point. And theoretically, the songwriters and the publishers will get a more equitable fee for all of the streaming that their songs have. Now, that... It doesn't address anything to do with the recordings themselves. The mm -hmm. artists who maybe are not songwriters, uh, it, it doesn't deal with that at all. That's a whole separate issue that the record companies that these records are being released by um, are going to have to work out with Spotify, and maybe they have. So the act is you know, potentially a great benefit for the songwriters and the music publishers. It also helps ASCAP and BMI Quick, can enormously. One, one, one sec, because that, that, so that's point number one, basically. Right. Right there, is the, this, the creation of this new fund.
that's going right. to pay uh, publishers and songwriters down the line. We have no idea who's going to be in the fund. We know. Well, well, it's not a fund. It's a database. A, a, a database. So the database, who, and the industry's been working on a database for decades. Right. So basically, and Spotify is off the hook on lawsuits going forward. So right. They have a, a few that they got to settle from the past, but mm -hmm. they're not going to get slammed with any more of them. Right. So and so, which is great for them because their shareholders, yeah. investors now know that they're not exposed. So that's a big win for Spotify right there. And I'm, I'm counting that as maybe a win for songwriters down the line but right now i'm saying that that's not a big win for songwriters that they got duped um unless this actually happens and i don't see this happening for five ten years you i think it's going to take a while yeah and you know there's supposed to be a committee made up of publishers and independent artists or independent self-published songwriters excuse me mm. that's the phrase now how are those people going to be chosen right you know, how long are they going to be on this committee? Is it going to be revolving? You know, the devil is in the details, and the, the act doesn't address that. It needs to be worked out. So it could be great, but it may be a while before its greatness is fully realized. And what about YouTube? They YouTube is, I think, in terms of YouTube, is a streaming service. So YouTube will also, with regard to getting licenses from the compositions, YouTube will, YouTube will also benefit from that so mm -hmm. another win for google yeah yeah, yeah. so right. amazon music pandora youtube apple music you know it 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 the goal of sort of equalizing the playing field and standardizing a feed that's fair i hope that happens i hope you know equal i'm like so i don't care necessarily about equalizing the playing field i'm more concerned about standardizing a fee that is fair because mm -hmm. um you know it's now the it's now somewhat in a certain way replace radio as the primary means of music dissemination um people are not getting paid if that's what the if that's what the business is going to become people aren't going to buy cds anymore people aren't going to buy downloads it's all going to be streaming then there's got to be a fair monetization of it otherwise artists can only survive by touring now does it do anything to the consent uh, consent decrees well the you know yes there are these you know without getting too much into the weeds, there are these two decrees that rule how ASCAP and BMI are governed and how they can work. And what it does is it finally, after, you know, I think those decrees were entered into 40, 50, 60 years ago, it finally enables ASCAP and BMI to, to sort of open the door and um, they can... Well, but actually, before the consent decrees, the, the other really important thing I want to talk about is the mechanical royalty rate, mm -hmm. because that's real. <clears throat> you know, mechanical royalty is the rate that a songwriter gets when somebody records their song. And it's been, for years, it's, it rose up to nine cents and a fraction, so 9.091. 9 mm -hmm. And so if you were a songwriter and you had 10 songs on an album, you got 91 cents for every record sold. Um, and for a lot of songwriters, that's where they made their money, when sales of discs or CDs were the primary means. Um, it also is supposed to apply to streaming. The problem is that the publisher has been screaming that nine cents a song is not enough. It stopped being enough a long time ago. And this agency, this government agency called the Copyright Royalty Tribunal or the Copyright Royalty Board was the one that was supposed to be setting this rate. And for years the publisher has been screaming that they're not, they're, not, they're not into the modern era. They're still, you know, when nine cents a song meant something and that's no longer. So now there is a way for that, that standard 
to be revised. And in the past, they, the, if a, someone wanted to dispute that, the court and the people who would look at this couldn't take into account the free market conditions, like what's happening now. That changed. So there's really an opportunity for the mechanical royalty rate to increase substantially, which is definitely going to benefit songwriters. It's also going to benefit all the publishers, but, you know, the, the songwriters are getting their money from pub A lot of songwriters have publishing deals. So that will affect them in a very significant way. And that, I think, will happen probably sooner than anything else, um, or at least sooner than setting up this music mechanical, this licensing collective that grants blanket licenses and the database, you know, that'll, that'll going to happen. But I think that, that the mechanical royalty rate increasing is something that could happen much sooner. Um, so now back to ASCAP and BMI, you know, if there was a dispute, um, they were pretty much, you were sort of locked in. You had to go to one judge who heard all their cases, all the ASCAP and BMI cases, and there was a feeling that, that that worked against anybody who had a complaint. Um, now there's a rotating wheel where the judges are going to be selected at random. There's lots of judges. So the feeling is that this is going to hopefully create some positive change in the way ASCAP and BMI work and, and, and the licensing fees that they can charge. Um, and, and really, you know, their formulas for, for paying their, their affiliated writers are, are so obscure. They each have these very complex algorithms mm -hmm. that they use to determine who gets the money. I don't think any writer affiliated with ASCAP or BMI has a clue how that works. <laughs> they are happy to get the check when they get it. And, you know, it's been said that, well, it's a combination of airplay and sales and mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. But nobody really knows. Um, my hope is that that one byproduct of the MMA is that there perhaps may be a little bit more transparency on how they calculate their numbers. In addition to getting them to ask for more for licenses or for performance licenses, um, you know, artists. I think Irving Azar set up his own. PR, PR, PRS, Performance Rights Society, because he felt that ASCAP and BMI were so hampered by their consent degrees that they couldn't deal with the market as it exists now. Um, and the hope is that, I think ASCAP and BMI are hoping that this will enable them to make the adjustments so that they can, they can be competitive with you know, Irving's company, not that they probably care a whole lot about Irving Azov's company because it's so small by compared to them, but they do recognize the fact that, that if, they can't, if they can't get more for licenses, um, performance licenses, more being an amount that is really representative of what the free market now might pay, that writers will figure out other ways, and maybe they won't join ASCAP and BMI. Um, so... I think that, you know, this could really help them, and it could help. It's another way that it could help writers enormously. When? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long it's going to take before that actually trickles down into the paychecks that writers who are affiliated with ASCAP and BMI get. Uh, it could be a couple of years before any meaningful change is felt. But the, the hope is that, 
it will happen, based mm -hmm. on the fact that this act says that there's a mechanism now to enable it to happen. Right. You know, this, the, the whole way that music publishing works can be, is very obscure to a lot of people, even to a lot of recording artists who don't necessarily write, and to, and to artists who do write, it takes a while sometimes for people to figure out what music publishing really is. It's, all, it's really not that complex, but it's sort of shrouded in mystery. And as a result of that, it's a lot easier for an artist to say, well, I sell a record, I get a royalty, I get that. You know, music publishing tends to, people get glazed over after a while with it, but it's not that complex. And it's now the biggest investment that venture capitalists and people would want to make. Nobody wants to buy a record company. Nobody wants to start a record company. But I can't tell you how many people over the last year have said to me, hey, if you know any publishing catalogs that are available, we're really interested in buying. Everybody wants to buy publishing mm -hmm. because publishing can have value irrespective of the format. Exactly. You know, the next, whatever the next format is after streaming, you're still going to need licenses for the use of the compositions and the next format after that and the next format after that. Right. So right. publishing is ultimately, it's not sexy, it's not, you know, exciting like the record side is, but it's where consistently money is, it's almost like buying treasury bills. You know, it's not the most sexy investment one can make, but you know you'll make money and it's stable. So, right. you know, this is going to hopefully help the publishing industry make a lot more money. All right, we have, we have one tweet for you um, sure. th that Faith is going to read. We have about three minutes left in the show, so uh, tweet, uh, Faith, read the tweet. All right, the question is, how does the music producer-engineer part work? Okay, um, it's, called the <laughs> the, it's called the Allocation for Music Producers Act. And what it does is it really, it really has to do with sound exchange. And it enables producers and engineers to receive direct payments from sound exchange when the recordings they've worked on are played on satellite radio and online radio services like Pandora. Okay, so simply that's how it works. It enables them to get paid from sound exchange. And strangely enough, that wasn't available to them before. Ah. So, but... In, in a, when Sound Exchange uh, collects money, 50% right. goes to the sound recording copyright owner, 5% goes to non-featured artist unions, etc. 45% goes to the featured artist. Where, where is this percentage coming from? From whose cut? Well, since the producer is normally paid out of the artist's royalty stream by the record company, uh, I think it's got to come out of the artist's stream. Ah, mm -hmm. so the artist lose again. Okay. Yeah. Um, this well, stinks. look, you know, the I think, deal... Uh, yeah. I, I'm yeah so, there was a time when producers were staff producers and they got no royalties, but that's not the case anymore. So right, producers so, are independent contractors like everybody else. And they're already getting a percentage. Actually, no, well, I, yeah, I get it, but I, I think they're already getting something. I don't know. I think... Uh, my my problem with the, this all all along has been SiriusXM was was bashed by the media for for holding this up for a little while because SiriusXM's thing was was two part because they were mad because they had to pay the pre seventy two, right? But they were also mad because their rates that they needed to pay were going to go up. Yet terrestrial radio, free over the air radio, still does not have to pay recording artists for or, and labels just like Sound Exchange uh, pays them. Uh, terrestrial radio still doesn't need to pay the recording artists when they play their music. The performance. And this country is one of the one of the one of the few. That's 
that's not the way it is in many other right. countries. Yeah. But um, in and, the U.S., North Korea, I guess Iran, right. you know, the axis of evil, we're part of that. And this act does not cover that, and that's billions no. of dollars that could go to artists that was not covered. Well, you could thank the NAB. The NAB is an right. extraordinarily yeah. powerful lobby. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's... You know, yeah, so, so so my my whole thing against this, not against it, but problem with it all along has been it, that was not addressed. That was the elephant in the room that nobody wanted to tackle. Sirius it, XM was yeah. trying to tackle it for their own reasons, but it was right. also a good reason, too. You know, radio used to, the argument was that radio would say, we're giving the artists free promotion and marketing. We're exposing it. But that's not the case anymore for yeah. most artists. And so that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So now it's just about money. You know, the radio, the, the consolidation of radio is really part of that too you know you've got a few companies that own thousands of radio stations and they're very powerful they're very they, some of them might not be making money like clear channel but they still wield a lot of power mm -hmm. and they don't if they have to pay start paying some calculated fee every time they play a record to the record company um for the artist's benefit and the little label and the artist's benefit um, they'll complain that that's going to drive them out of business. I'm sure that's like a big argument that they used. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where would we be without radio? You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Who listens? I don't, you know, I listen to NPR, so I can't say I don't listen to radio. But, you know, I'm not sure. Beside, be, be, beyond drive time, morning and evening, it seems like if you go to people's offices, they're playing Pandora, Sirius, Internet radio. Sure, yeah. You know, sure. I don't know. The, the whole paradigm has changed. And radio's got to have to catch up. And eventually, you know, the RIAA, the RIAA is nowhere near as powerful as the NAB. I think that's the other problem, too. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, yeah, uh, the, it's an unequal playing field in terms of the lobbying effort that's been made. And so until that changes, I mean, you said Sinatra was trying to lobby for this in the 50s. So mm -hmm. think about that. Yeah. 70 years, artists have been trying to get radio to pay uh, for the performance of the play, the, for, to play records. Not payola play, pay to play, but the play, the pay, pay to air recordings on the air. And uh, they've gotten away with it this far. And we've gotten away with a pretty good radio show with you, George. We yes, have to wrap it up. all night. Yes. I hope I didn't ramble too much, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for calling in. Thank we you. appreciate it. Don't, and thank you, Stephen Marconi, Dr. Stable, for yes. getting George, for nabbing him, finding him, and pulling him in. Yes. It's great to have well, you, Well, Steve and I go way back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the beginnings of radio, the Marconi era. So thank All you, right. George Gilbert, for calling in. Very thank much you. appreciated. Have a thank great you. night. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And so there we go. In a 30-second 30, 30 maximum wrap-up. Esteban. Uh, huh. Well, I thought it was, um, yes, I thought he gave a good history of the industry. Right. Uh, everything that we actually say in class was said by him, and here's a guy that's been doing it for 25, 30 years, uh, and uh, he does understand the MMA. Yeah. Uh, even, I mean, I understand it a little more now, mm -hmm. but he does understand it, and it is complex because, like so many bills in uh, Congress, they tack on so many different things. Right. And this was, like he said, three different issues mm -hmm. came out in the uh, MMA, <laughs> but uh, really wasn't all MMA to it. Right. George just texted us and said thank you. Right. Thank you, George. And uh, we should tell next week on our radio show, 
We have Carrie Keller, touring events coordinator at Columbia Records, and Miles Franco, who's the finance manager at Ultra Music. Great. Coming up after that, Harvey Leeds. Two, two alums. Yes. Jake Posner, Arizona's manager, Grammy winner Bill Charlap, all coming up before the year ends on Music Biz 101 and more on Bravery Radio. We need to wrap up Dr. Esteban. Mm -hmm. So we should thank Faith, Faith Booster, for all the hard work she put in. Yes. Reading the one she fake tweet. <laughs> I know, so thank you. I, I made up that tweet. We want to thank... Uh, Ashley Veltner for making this happen and pushing the red button when the bad word was said. Thank you very much, Ashley Veltner. We want to thank Jaden Hudson for sitting there and not ruining this yes. and not sabotaging our show. And we want to thank me because I'm awesome. I'm Professor David Kirkville. We're listening to Brave New Radio, the number one station in America, number one non-commercial Marconi winning radio station. At the end of every show, we do not say hello. That'd be stupid to say hello, wouldn't it, Ashley? She agrees and she nods, right, Ashley? She agrees and nods. That's why we love her. Now, at the end of every show, we say... Adios! Put your hand in mine